Uh, we're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. And there's a book that a friend of mine, Scott Bruns, who's the executive director at Soda Hills Camp in Wheelersburg, he passed this book on to me. It's called I Would Follow Jesus by Joseph Stoll. It's a, it's a short little book. And as I've been reading it, I came across this, this story that stopped me in my tracks. And it was, it was a parallel of two different interviews. Um, Joseph Stoll had the opportunity to sit. It wasn't a formal interview. He had the opportunity to sit at dinner next to Billy Graham once. And he wanted to ask a question of Billy Graham that he had always wanted to ask him this question. And the question was this. What have you enjoyed most of all your experiences? And here's what Billy Graham's response was. By far the greatest joy of my life has been fellowship with Jesus. I mean, think of that. Of all the things that Billy Graham has done, his answer at 80 years old was by far the greatest joy of my life is fellowship with Jesus. Hearing him speak to me, having him guide me, sensing his presence with me and his power through me, this has been the highest pleasure of my life. And parallel to that, on the next page is a story of Lee Strobel flying up to meet with Chuck Templeton. Now, for those of you who don't know, Chuck Templeton was a, an associate of Billy Graham who left the faith um, and became an agnostic. And in this interview, uh, he had, after some defending of his agnosticism, Lee Strobel asked him how he felt about Jesus. And the man paused, being elderly, up in years, Strobel says that his heart, he could see his heart soften a bit. And his reply was, I miss him. And he wept. As we come to the close of 2 Timothy, brothers and sisters, we have the great privilege of looking into uh, the last writing of the great Apostle Paul. Great, not because of anything he was, but great because of his great experience of Jesus and his grace. And here we have his last charge to his protege, Timothy. And, and I, I, I love this passage. Matter of fact, this is our vision passage for Tri-State Bible College. Because what we have here is Paul's final ministry commands to Timothy. It's his final ministry commands uh, to Timothy, but we get to read it. And when we come to this passage, we see that Paul wants Timothy to fulfill his ministry because he's going to see Jesus one day. Let's see what Paul has said to Timothy. The scriptures say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, 
Do the work of an evangelist. And finally, fulfill your ministry. If we could sum up the biblical idea of the passage, I've said it this way, is that Paul commanded Timothy to fulfill the ministry of training leaders in a context of competition between the reliable gospel message and the popular myths of his day. This is what his charge is to Timothy. There's a great need. Timothy needs to fulfill what remains in the gospel ministry. The apostle's going to die. I'm almost 40 years old. Let me speak to those who are 40 and younger for just a minute. My brothers and sisters, the older generation will, must hand this off at some point. Are you ready? Are you ready to fulfill what remains? It will come to us. So there's a great need. And Paul charges Timothy with nine imperatives. Now, it's an interesting, uh, interesting passage here. Among the New Testament books, only James and 1 Timothy have a higher frequency of commands than 2 Timothy. And right here in 2 Timothy 4, second, it, it reaches its highest point in chapter 4, 1 through 5. There are five Aorist active imperatives there in verse two, there's those five imperatives and there are three more in, uh, in verse five that are aorist active and there's one that's a present active. I'll talk about what that means in just a second. But there's nine commands in five verses. You can see, and, and if you watch the frequency of this in the book, it just keeps going up to where it crescendos right here. And so he's, he has these imperatives from the perspective of a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, who had fulfilled his part in the ministry in a myth-filled world. I mean, Paul ministered in a myth-filled world, didn't he? There were all these competing narratives. But with a straight course, he followed the narrative the gospel story, the truth, the way, the life. And he's charging Timothy to do the same. So the purpose of the text is a generational transition, a charge to that generation coming up in anticipation of Christ's coming and kingdom. As we look at verse one, we see the charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So he's not charging him in the presence of man or in the presence of the world or the world's systems or the world's ideas or philosophies, but in the presence of Christ Jesus, God and Christ. Christ is the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. So, so Timothy, as you, as you fulfill your ministry, you need to understand that the eyes under which you fulfill this ministry belong to God and his son Jesus. That's who's watching you. That's whose gaze you need to be most concerned about. Amen. God and Christ. And then we have in verse two these five commands. Preach the word. Preach the word. The idea here is uh, these five commands, they're, they're, in this, they're constructed this way. Uh, that there's two kinds of aspects when you look at 
Greek commands. There's the, there's the aspect of someone on the rooftop looking at the whole of the action, okay? They have the bird's eye view, if you will. And these five commands are from that perspective. Preach the word. That is, when, when your whole ministry is looked at, when your whole life is examined, will you have preached the word throughout? That's the command. Preach the word throughout your ministry. Don't ever stop from beginning to end. Preach the word. And the word for word here is specific. It's logos. Oftentimes when myths and historical accounts are used, it's logos and muthoi. Logos and muthoi. Word and myths. Because logos communicates a reliable, historical, factual account. Amen? This is the gospel. So many times throughout 2 Timothy, there's testimony of the Apostle Paul that leads to then an expression of truth. And that testimony is this. We see it all through the New Testament. I'm passing on to you what I received also. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, right? He was buried. And he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, I'm passing on to you what I also received, that on the night that Christ Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. You know, these, these things were not made up. These things actually happened. This is the account. This is the word. Preach the word, the gospel, the death and resurrection and the life and the ascension and the coming of Jesus. Preach the word. I can't help but think of Jeremiah when I, when I read this phrase. Jeremiah, and I, and I think of Jeremiah because I, I'm living in the context of this day and time. Jeremiah, brothers and sisters, had a lonely urgency. He says at one point that the message, the prophetic word, was like a fire in his stomach. And if he did not speak it, it would burn up his bones. Let me see your eyes. Where are those people today? Where are the Jeremiah's who, whether people listen or not, the word is still like fire in the bones. I gotta open my mouth and let it out. Preach the word. The word to Paul, the word to Jeremiah, what, what Paul wanted the word to be. And when I say the word, I'm talking about the scriptures and specifically within the scriptures, the gospel message. Paul wanted this word to be Timothy's delight. The thing that give, gave him joy. It's sustaining joy, no matter what's happening. Preach that word. The second command is to stand ready when convenient and inconvenient. Hey, be ready. Who is ready for COVID? Huh? <laughs> Anybody? Nobody on the planet was ready for this. Nobody. I mean, in, in, in less than two years, we have watched our world systems slow down to almost full stop and then struggle to start again. Who was ready? 
You want me to tell you who was ready? Pastors were ready. They may not have felt, and they may still not feel ready. But there, listen, during COVID, I have seen how important pastors are. Because they keep going. They keep preaching. They keep injecting hope into our lives. They keep praying. They keep caring. And they don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. They just want you to be loved and to know Jesus. I've, I've seen it. They've been ready. They didn't know if they were ready. I mean, there's some things they're like, well, technology and this, but, but the heart, I've seen the heart. God bless them. Reprove. Again, we're talking about these imperatives from, the, from this bird's eye view. Remember, don't forget that. Paul's commanding Timothy, like, this is what, your ministry from start to finish should look like. You should preach the word, stand ready when convenient and inconvenient, and reprove. And that word means to bring conviction. (laughs) Preachers are supposed to make you feel convicted in a faithful way consistent with the word of God. Not make you feel convicted because of their soapbox, but because of the word of God. They are supposed to do this. We are supposed to be convicted of our sins. The word of God is supposed to provoke within us a response that recognizes that he is God, he is holy, I am a sinner, I need your grace, I need your mercy, I need the satisfactory work of your son. It is supposed to happen. It is not inconvenient to feel guilty and to need grace. Amen? And then the other side of this, so, so that reproving is I'm, I'm already in something that I should be convicted about, right? And, and then this next word, rebuke, is preventative. Don't do that. <laughs> Let me stop you before you get into it. It's a preventative, it's like exercise and eating right, right? That's, that's, re, that's reproving, or I'm sorry, that's rebuking. Rebuking is exercise and eat right so you don't have all these problems. So that's, what, that's the, what the rebuking ministry that Timothy must fulfill. And then finally, encourage. Timothy, as you go about your ministry from start to finish, and I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, encourage urge and exhort strongly. You know, the word encourage, it just means to pass on courage to the body. It's just simple. Give them courage. Why do they need courage? Because the world is the world. Brothers and sisters, increasingly, it's going to take more and more courage to follow Jesus. So how does he do this? With total forbearance. The minister must bear up when provoked. The minister needs to be able to take a punch or two and be patient. Timothy 
how you fulfill your ministry from start to finish is you're able to encourage with all forbearance. You're able, to, you're able to take some shots and keep loving and passing on courage anyway. But not just with total forbearance, but with instruction. Instruction. Encourage them and teach them. Pass on courage with good teaching and sound doctrine is the idea. And so what we have here are the imperatives of the second coming, brothers and sisters. As, as we serve as stewards, shepherds, and servants, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again, I need to preach the word, be ready, reprove, rebuke, and encourage. And then in the next two verses, we see the burden of God. The burden of God is something that pains him and brings him sorrow and even anger about our world, about his world. Look at verse three. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This pains God. Listen, this burden of God Paul shared. Brothers and sisters, do you know the burden of God for today? Have you climbed under and found the burden of God? And do you share it? Like Paul, and he said, I Paul who says in Romans, I wish that I would be accursed and cut off from Christ for the salvation of my people. That, that's a person who's experienced the burden of God. People will be deceived. Are you burdened by this? You know, the explanation for why Timothy needs to do all these things is this time is coming. They're not gonna bear with healthy and sound teaching. They're not, gonna, they're not gonna stick with it. Instead, they're gonna accumulate. And the idea here is to pile up. They're gonna pile up teachers for themselves. They're just gonna keep adding and keep adding and new voices and new voices. Uh, this was used in an ancient piece of literature for a retired Roman politician who, having made pledges for rest and tranquility, the moment he steps on the Capitol floor, he starts to accumulate governmental affairs. He just can't stop. He's like, give me, give me more, give me more, give me more. And let me be honest, when, when COVID hit and everyone went online, and all my sheep went online, I quickly realized as I was hearing different things, one of my great concerns was, who are you listening to? Over and over again in 2 Timothy, Paul emphasizes, look at, just look, with the, look at chapter three, and this, this is in many, I invite you to look at, search this out for yourselves, but in chapter three, verse 14, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. You need, listen, you need to know whom you are learning from. You should know the person. 
Just because someone is a good preacher online, it may be, you don't know them. You know him. You, you need to have a relationship with the person who's discipling you. It's important. So the, the day is described as, you know, some people will not bear with healthy and sound teaching. Um, they will accumulate teachers for themselves according to their own lust. So, so the idea is that I, I have lusts and desires. I'm gonna connect that to a teacher that matches, who will affirm. And the reason that he gives for this is because they have itching ears. There's just an insatiable curiosity for new things. Never, never getting mature, just new things, new things, new things. Never growing up. You know, Jesus says, with regard to faith, be like children. But with regard to doctrine, be a grown-up. We get it backwards. We want to be adults when it comes to faith and be skeptical. And when it comes to mature doctrine, we want to be kids. <laughs> Let's reverse those things. Let's have childlike faith, trusting dependence, and mature in doctrine. Now, notice what happens in the next verse. As they're doing this, they will, turn, they will turn away from listening to the truth. It's an active verb. They, the, they themselves will turn away. They will actively turn their listening away from the truth. This is an act that these people will do in this time. They will actively turn away. And then the next action, on the other hand, is a passive verb they will be turned away. So after you actively turn away, then other forces will take over and further turn you away outside of your control. Other things will grab hold of your mind and your heart once you've made that initial step away. And what are these things that will turn us away that we will be turned away toward myths. As we turn away from the truth, the only other option is to turn toward or be turned toward some other narrative, some other story that claims to explain things other than the gospel. Turn toward myths. The idea here is the legendary tales characteristic of the teachers in Ephesus. Ephesian Artemis was the big goddess of Ephesus in those days. Uh, there were stories of her providing health, her providing wealth. We see this in the book of Acts. There's all these dealers going on in Artemis and trade and taking advantage of people to promote their business and so on and so forth. 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were wit eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, this isn't a myth. This is the logos. This is the reliable account. And then finally, we have the imperatives coming out of the burden. So, 
Now, this is the only present imperative in the passage. You be self-controlled. Now, the present aspect is not the bird's eye view. It's the shoulder-to-shoulder living. I'm in the crowd. When I'm living in the crowd, Paul's command to Timothy is, you be self-controlled as you live in this world. You be moderate. Don't be swayed to one extreme or the other, one pole or the other. You be moderate. You keep your gaze fixed on Christ. Don't be swayed this way or that. You be self-controlled. In all things, be free from all excess, rashness, confusion, be sober, serious, and reasonable. In all things. Second, endure suffering patiently. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach the gospel and fulfill your ministry. Fill out what remains left in your ministry assignment. Whatever is left in the bottle, fill it up. Whatever ministry is left to do in the world, do it. Do it. Now, as we transition, there's a timeless tension here. Amen? There's a timeless tension. And that timeless tension is this. Until Christ comes, there will always be a competitive tension in the world for the minds and hearts of leaders between the Logos and the Mythos. Always. Our purpose is to continue the gospel charge from one generation to the next. And I've got a quote here, if we can have that up. Meta-narrative. Let me define this. It's a certain way in which modern people have legitimized absolutist discourse and originated or grounded it in autonomous reason. Now, <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. Here, here's what that means. There's an absolutist discourse. There's no gray. Black and white. No gray. Everything's black and white. But the source of the black and white is you, yourself, and I. <laughs> me, myself, and I. Me, myself, you, yourself, and we. <laughs> me, myself, and I. I'm the one who determines what's absolute. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. And it's absolute for me. And sometimes it gets corporate. Sometimes it gets, you know, we decide. what's. But it's human. It's a human construct. If we can go on to the next slide. Michael Horton, in his book, The Christian Faith, says, all of our worldviews are stories. Christianity does not claim to have escaped this fact. The prophets and apostles were fully conscious of the fact that they were interpreting reality within the framework of a particular narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, as told to a particular people for the benefit of the world. The biblical faith claims that its story is the one that God is telling, which relativizes and judges the other stories about God. That is, it's the story. There isn't a, there's no other story. Other stories about God, us, and the world. The prophets and apostles did not believe that God's mighty acts in history, the mega-narrative, were dispensable myths that represented universal truths. You know, it's just not a story to teach you a, a, a moral truth. It is the story. It's reality. For them, the big story did not point to something else beyond it, but was itself the point. God really created all things, including humans in his image, and brought Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. He really drowned a greater kingdom than Pharaoh and his army in Christ's death and resurrection. 
God's mighty acts in history are not myths that symbolize timeless truths. They create the unfolding plot within which our lives and destinies find the proper coordinates. It's the story. This is the reality. And so, brothers and sisters, our timeless truth for today is that upcoming leaders always face a battle for their faith and loyalty. Always. Always. There's always going to be a battle. May we lay hold of that which has laid hold of us. May we know Christ and the power of his resurrection and unashamedly proclaim this gospel as the reliable narrative that defines and determines all of reality. May we be Christ-centered, gospel-loyal people more than we are progressive this or conservative that. That we may recover the word of God and therefore not be pacifists or not be power-hungry, but brothers and sisters, let me see your eyes. Be prophets. Not prophets in giving new revelation. We already have that. But in telling forth what we have. Where's the prophetic voice today? Where's the church? Giving clear direction to God. So today's message is to fulfill your ministry. I've got seven things, seven things, seven ways for today's stewards, shepherds, and servants to fulfill generational faithfulness. And this is in your outline. Number one, anticipate the finish. Anticipate the finish. When all things are said and done, each of us, each of us, will stand before God and his Christ. This is the finish. How then should you live today? This is what Paul's trying to convey to Timothy. Live this way, do these things, because I'm charging you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. Number two, avoid the world's weeds. Avoid the world's weeds. Look, look, the world is constantly coming up with stories to govern your life, narratives to control your life. There's only one story that should ever control your life. It is the gospel. I was looking through campaign slogans from the last several years. <laughs> you would think these guys thought they were messiahs. Build better, build better, I forget, build better tomorrow or whatever. Save America. Who do you think you are? Restore the soul of America. Who? <laughs> You're not God. Avoid the world's weeds. I mean, love, love people. Be kind to people. Be gospel-centered people to people. But be loyal to Jesus. Avoid the world's weeds. Number three, apprehend moderate living. Brothers and sisters, um, we need to recover a serious life of moderation. Um, Christ's people, we shouldn't be defined by excess.
we struggle with this as American Christians particularly. Uh, You are a steward, you're an owner of nothing. I mean, if COVID hasn't taught us that in a minute, everything can change, what will? We're stewards. Apprehend moderate living. Number four, advance the gospel message. Amen? (laughs) Advance the gospel. If you want to fulfill your ministry, if you want to help in passing off to to the next generation, advance the gospel message. This is the story. And this is obvious to us, but it needs to be said. Advance the gospel. You're having a trunk or treat coming up. Amen? This is an opportunity. You're going to have kids, parents, families, cousins, neighbors. Advance the gospel. Advance the gospel. Number five, answer the call of generational transitions. Answer this call Let me speak to our brothers and sisters who are 40 and older. If you aren't equipping and training the next generation, you are failing. If you're holding tight to positions and power and with no hint or vision for bringing up the next generation, you're failing. You must answer the call of generational transitions. You are not going to be here forever. So train them now. Invest now. Love them now. Disciple them now. Assemble leaders. Assemble leaders. We see this in chapter two. You know, this isn't in our passage here, but in chapter two, look what Paul says to Timothy, and it's connected to our passage. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me, there it is again, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So assemble them. Who, who are they? Identify them. And get them together. Help them to learn to do ministry as a team, to serve the body of Christ together. And then the next one, adore the word of God. This is our final one, number seven. It's just interesting to me very much that when Paul, after his final ministry command to Timothy, he says, fulfill your ministry. And then he starts to talk about the end of his life in verse six and following. And then he gets into some personal instructions. So these aren't ministry instructions, but they're personal instructions. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 13. He tells Timothy that when you come, bring the cloak. It's probably cold. That I left with Carpus at Troas. But look at this. Also the books and above all the parchments. When Paul's at the end of his life, the thing that he wants is a blanket and the word of God. When you get to the end of your life, what will bring you delight the most? And this has to be cultivated, brothers and sisters. There's a Greek game that was played 
called the Lampa de Dromia, the torch race. And it's, it was a unique race. It wasn't played in the Olympics. It was part in, played in the uh, Pan-Athenian Games. And it was unique because it wasn't about who finished first. It was about who finished with their torch still lit. Brothers and sisters, fulfill your ministry in such a way that when you finish, your torch will be lit, shining bright, delighting in the greatest joy of your life, just like Billy Graham in Jesus Christ.